hppodcraft.com. Dear friend, enclosed you will find some portions of the diary it has been my lifelong custom to keep, arranged in such a manner as to narrate connectedly the history of some remarkable occurrences that have taken place here during the last three years. Years and years ago, I heard vague accounts of a strange lake high up in an almost inaccessible part of the mountains of Wyoming. Various incredible tales were related of it, such as that it was inhabited by creatures which elsewhere on the globe are found only as fossils of a long-vanished time. The lake and its surroundings are of a volcanic origin, and not the least strange thing about the lake is that it is subject to periodic disturbances which take the form of a mighty boiling in the center, as if a tremendous artesian well were rushing up there from the bowels of the earth. The lake rises for a time, almost filling the basin of black rocks in which it rests, and then recedes, leaving on the shores mollusks and trunks of strange trees and bits of strange ferns which no longer grow, on the earth at least, and are to be seen elsewhere only in coal measures and beds of stone. And he who casts hook and line into the dusky waters may haul forth ganoid fishes completely covered with bony plates. All of this is described in the account written by Father Lemaitre years ago, and he there advances the theory that the earth is hollow, and that its interior is inhabited by the forms of plant and animal life which disappeared from its surface ages ago, and that the lake connects with this interior region. Sim's theory of polar orifices is well known to you. It is amply corroborated. I know that it is true now. Through the great holes at the poles, the sun sends light and heat into the interior. Through the great holes at the poles, the sun controls the console that heat up all the ancient tadpoles, <laughs> swimming in the earth like sauce and pizza rolls, <laughs> dancing around stripper poles, eating chicken casseroles, arguing okay. about gun controls, okay. handing out ski poles at the manhole. Okay, okay, I, okay, 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 stop. Don't stop me, I'm on a roll. Oh. Sorry, man. I've got this uh, deaf poetry disorder. <laughs> if I just hear like a couple of words rhyming, I go off. You sure do. What story are we reading today? We are reading The Monster of Lake Lemetry, a short story by Warden Alan Curtis, a story I don't think Lovecraft ever mentioned, but we're going to cover it here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and our reader is Alexandra Hansen. She's an English teacher from Queens, and she was on our Google Hangouts roundtable discussion about Lovecraft and TV in December. Yeah, I believe that's correct. And uh, we were lucky enough to meet Alexander and her family a few years ago in Providence. Very glad to have her on. So this month we're hoping to do another creature from the Black Lagoon, but mm-hmm. we haven't really found any good sea monster stories besides this one. And this is a good one. Now, there are <laughs> a couple of other possible candidates I need to look into, but if anybody has a suggestion for a good aquatic horror short story, yep. drop us a line, email, Twitter, Facebook. We'll announce on the site and social media what we're doing next after this story but for right now, this is where we're at. It's the monster of Lake Limitry. Pfeiffer, I think this might be the craziest story that we've ever covered on the show. <laughs> we've said that before. I know, but this thing is nuts, man. It, it is pretty crazy. Just reading the synopsis, I was like, that can't really be the plot. <laughs> I was like, this was clearly written in English, but then translated into Japanese uh-huh. and then translated back to English yes. by like a first year Japanese student who just guesses at things he doesn't know because it doesn't <laughs> make any sense what I'm reading right now. What about the author? I, I don't think I've heard of him before. Our buddy Jason Thompson pointed 
us in the direction of the story. And thankfully, he did so because this is awesome. Jason, of course, is the artist who created H.P. Lovecraft's Dream Quest, that graphic novel. I suggest people go check it out. It's at Mockman.com. Thanks, Jason, for a great story recommendation. So the author is uh, Warden Alan Curtis, and he was born in 1867 in the New Mexico Territory. Not yet a state. Doesn't become a state until 1912. His dad was a military man, so he traveled a lot when he was a kid. When he got older, he got his bachelor's degree from the University of Wisconsin. He worked as a journalist for many years in papers including the Chicago Daily News, Boston Herald, and the Manchester Union. But he wrote some fiction on the side, and this story was originally published in the September 1899 Pearson's Magazine. And from at least 1899 onward, he wrote science fiction and fantasy stories. The Black Cat published his story called The Fate of the Senegambian Queen in 1900. Weird Tales reprinted that story in its fall 1973 issue. His story, The Seal of Solomon the Great, appeared in the Argosy in 1901. And almost two decades later, in the 20s, All Story Weekly printed his tale, The Mahuslam Boys. <laughs> All other credits for Curtis, as listed in the Internet's speculative fiction database, are from his 1903 collection, The Strange Adventures of Mr. Middleton, which is described as a mixture of oriental fantasy and bizarre mystery, according to the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Hmm. And I'm getting those credits from a blog called Tellers of Weird Tales, which I will link out to. It's a really cool site, which focuses on the men and women, writers and artists who contributed to Weird Tales and other weird fiction magazines of the pulp era. It's a great resource. Curtis died in 1940, 12 days before his 74th birthday. Let's dig into the madness that is this story. In it, we have yet another tale that is told through the device of diaries and letters. That opening bit that we heard is a letter from James McLennigan, MD, PhD, to Professor Wilhelm G. Brayfogel. In that letter to him, he's saying, I've always written in a diary, and here, because of the strange thing that I've experienced, I'm enclosing some diary entries that describe the strange experience that I've had. The intro tells us that there is this lake that's up in the mountains of Wyoming that had crazy legends surrounding it, mostly that there were strange creatures. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, this lake would bubble up from its center. It would get really, really full, almost filling up the entire valley. Then it would soon return back to its normal state. But when the waters receded, it would leave all types of weird fish with bony plates supposedly prehistoric creatures. Right. It's the most educational bathtub ring of all time. <laughs> yeah. This guy who was out there a few years ago, Father Lemetry, says that he thinks that this lake is connected to some underground world where prehistoric life still lives. So he's into the Hollow Earth stuff. And have we ever talked about this before on the show? I don't know. I don't know if we have. Because that's a whole big subgenre of sci-fi. Yeah. This whole idea started in the 17th century by this guy, Edmund Halley, trying to explain anomalous compass readings. His theory was that the Earth was hollow and inside our Hollow Earth was another planet that was a bit smaller. And then inside of that one was also another planet. Which, and so they would have their own orbit and spin at different rates. And they mm -hmm. were just like this whole other thing. I don't know how he figured this stuff out or why he thought it was the case. <sighs> but there's some other ideas about the hollow earth where the center of our earth is actually a sun, like mm -hmm. a small, tiny sun, and that the concaved interior of the earth that people are and creatures are living on the inside of this. Right. Now, what's talked about in this story is this claim by John Symes in 1818 that the earth is hollow and that there are these 1,000 mile across holes at Earth's poles. 
Right, and that's the sun shines in through there, and that's how it sustains whatever life there is within the planet. I don't know if it's Symes or, or Sims, but he's really responsible for popularizing the hollow Earth theory. I think he originally started with that idea that there were spheres within spheres, but eventually went straight, no, the whole thing's hollow. In, in April of 1818, he self-published his Circular Number 1, which describes that theory, the hollow Earth theory. He sent it to each notable foreign government, reigning prince, legislator, city, college, and philosophical society throughout the Union, to individual members of our national legislature, as far as the 500 copies would go. So this is at great personal expense. He sent this stuff out. This is from Wikipedia. Sim's son, Americus wrote of the reaction to Circular Number 1 in 1878, recounting its reception by the public can easily be imagined. It was overwhelmed with ridicule as the production of a distempered imagination or the result of partial insanity. It was for many years a fruitful source of jest with the newspaper. Sims, though, was not deterred. He began a campaign of circulars, newspaper letters, and lectures aimed at defending and promoting his hypothesis of a hollow earth to build support for a polar expedition to vindicate his theory. This guy got John Quincy Adams to support an expedition to the North Pole. Wow. But that didn't happen before he left office and Andrew Jackson, when he got in, he was like, no, this is ridiculous. We're not funding this. One of the few good things that Andrew Jackson did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So this idea hung around for a long time and it's been a part of a lot of fiction writing. And the biggest one that I can think of is the journey to the center of the earth. Right. The Jules Verne book, which is really a lot of fun. And I can definitely see why this idea is appealing. And there's still, crazy enough, a bunch of conspiracy theorists out there that think it's all true and it's been covered up. My issue with conspiracy theories is never the actual idea necessarily. You know, a hollow earth or aliens or fake moon landing or that 9-11 was an inside job. My issue is the assumption that people are coordinated and secretive enough to carry any conspiracy out. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. No, people talk. People talk. Everything gets out. It always gets out. Yeah. You just can't cover stuff. I mean, Nixon couldn't freaking cover up Watergate for crying (laughs) out loud. And Clinton couldn't cover up his his sexual... uh... Yes. It's ridiculous. People will talk. They always talk, especially when it involves something huge because people are really excited about it. So, yeah, that's the number one reason I don't believe in conspiracy theories because... It's people. I just don't have faith in them. Exactly. (laughs) I just don't believe... So our narrator is this guy, McLennigan. He makes this journey with a young buddy of his, this guy, Edward Framingham. And this is uh, three years ago when he set off to check out this lake in the mountains of Wyoming. Edward is a bit of a sickly fellow and he suffers from a severe dyspepsia, which is indigestion. But he thinks that taking this long hike into the mountains will do him good. Right. They find the lake and in the cliffs near the lake, they discover an old stone house that was abandoned by cliff dwellers. It's drafty, but it'll do for them. And now we get into the journal entries. April 29th, 1896. The narrator collects plants, but Edward is all into the fishing. Mm. They've got a boat up there somehow. I know they got mules, so they must have put a boat on a mule. Edward goes out to the center of the lake just to see how deep it is. He has a 300-foot line and doesn't get anywhere near the bottom. Right. He he comes to shore, and after that, he gets every bit of line, string, strap, rope in their possession. He makes a 500-foot line, puts it in at that space, but he still can't reach the bottom. So he says, I think that's the place there where the lake communicates with the interior of the earth. I found it. Three days pass before the next entry. Edward is not doing well. His illness is just wrecking him. He's lying on a bed of leaves in their little drafty stone house. (laughs) The narrator really regrets bringing him. That day, the lake is full of waves and motion, but there's no wind. Yeah, some kind of disturbance that's unaccountable. The journal entry cuts off suddenly. He says the roaring seems to grow louder momentarily, framing him. And then there's the dash. He was about to write something else, but he had to to go. At least had the forethought to put a dash there so you knew that he was being interrupted. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, the next entry is uh, the following morning, the night before, as he was writing the diary, why he stopped so abruptly, is he thought he heard a snake. There was this hissing sound and he looked over his shoulder on the ground and he saw some movement, right. but it wasn't a snake. It was a stream of water that was coming in and it was hitting the fire that was on the ground and it was sizzling. Just as he saw that the water was coming in, he noticed that a lot of water was starting to come in. And then he got Edward and himself up to the top of the house because the whole thing is just flooding. It's what Lametri described, this flooding of the lake. They're able to climb to the top of the house. And I don't know if that's in the design of the house that you're able to do that, but I would assume so. It makes sense. They built it in, in such a way that you can get up there and get away from this water. The water continued rising, going up to about the halfway point on the house, and then it stops. It remains still for a bit, and then it rushes away again. At the center of the lake is this huge whirlpool. The water is getting sucked into that big hole. It's like a drain in a tub. In the morning, they find that their mules had drowned and that their boat was destroyed. Most of their food was damaged and lots of the samples and instruments were ruined. And Edward is just getting worse. He figures they're going to have to leave soon. And that sucks because just like Father Lametri described, all sorts of strange and interesting things have washed up because of the disturbance. And out in the middle of the lake, it looks like lots of things are floating around. He sees what looks like maybe a bunch of trees and one in particular really big. It's 10 feet wide and 30 feet long. He decides he's going to make a raft and get out to to this thing before they have to leave. So the next day, McLennigan goes down to check out what the lake, you know, actually brought up. He sees that the giant tree trunk is no longer out there among the driftwood. So he assumes, well, it must have gotten waterlogged and sunk. There's no other reason for it to have disappeared, whatever that was. So he brought with him a machete. He says in Brazil, he learned the usefulness of this saber-like thing. So while he was down there, he must have gone to a seminar or a machete (laughs) class at the community college. He's aware of machete technique. So he's down by the shore looking at some shells when something comes up behind him and snaps at his clothes and he whirls around and he just hacks without even looking. (laughs) He discovers that it is an elasmosaurus, one of those long-necked sea dinosaurs from the late Cretaceous period. Well, when he hit it, he hit it with a machete, he hit it hard and he sliced off the top of its head. Yeah, that is a precise blow and makes me kind of question the credibility of the story, but I'm going to get into that in a, in a bit. I've got some questions about mm-hmm. this journal. Yeah. Surprisingly, <laughs> this doesn't kill the thing. It's breathing and it seems like it's in some kind of coma. It's unconscious, yeah. but it's still alive. It's just lying on the rocks with the top of its head cut off. He writes, I decided that my sudden cut had acted like a stunning blow and produced a sort of coma. Just to make sure the thing isn't going to cause any problems, he scoops its brains out <laughs> and then he gets a better look at the beast. In length of body, it is exactly 28 feet. In the widest part, it is eight feet through laterally and is some six feet through from back to belly. Four great flippers, rudimentary arms and feet, and an immensely long, sinuous, swan-like neck complete the creature's body. Its head is very small for the size of the body and is very round, and a pair of long jaws project in front much like a duck's bill. Its skin is a leathery integument of a lustrous black, and its eyes are enormous hazel optics with a soft, melancholy stare in their liquid depths. It is an elasmosaurus, one of the largest of antediluvian animals. Whether of the same species as those whose bones have been discovered, I cannot say. Super crazy. And you know, he didn't just scoop the brains out willy-nilly. He removed the brain. And then he sewed the scalp of the thing back into place. It was like a little operation that he had performed. (laughs) Now, the Elasmosaurus may have been on his mind because it had just been discovered in Kansas in 1868. The dinosaur, it's this crazy looking thing with a long, long, long neck. Really, really long neck. Its neck's almost the length of its entire body. Right. 
Yeah, go look, go look it up, up online. It's pretty creepy looking. Yeah. So he goes back to Edward and tells him that he's killed the dinosaur. And Edward perks up. <laughs> perks up. He does. He's like, whoa, I'm feeling a lot better now that you've killed a dinosaur. Let's go check this thing out. Strangely, the beast is still breathing and its heart is beating. He says a shark's heart will beat for hours after being removed and frogs live for weeks after their heads have been cut off. Must be something like that that's going on. Uh, They take off the top of the head of the creature and they can see that it's already starting to heal. So when he sewed it back on, I guess he put some hinges on there or something so they could just pull this thing thing off and on whenever they want. I don't know. He also comments on how much it looks like the inside of a human skull. Same size and shape. Right, and I don't think he measured it. He's no. just guessing at it. I, or he deduced it by taking his sunglasses off and he put them on the dinosaur. He went, look, <laughs> they fit perfectly. It's as if it's got a human head. The next morning, a uh, very short entry, Edward is super ill and he's saying, look, if I don't die naturally, I'm going to kill myself. And there's nothing the doctor can do about it. Yeah. Uh, he's got no medicine left that can fit this dyspepsic horror. So that evening, the journal says... He buried the body of Edward, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to put a gravestone up yet. Right. Edward had felt better enough earlier that he could go down with McLennigan to see the creature, which was still there breathing. McLennigan crams uh, some muscles down the creature's mouth to feed it. Yeah, to keep it alive. It says, with a convulsive gasp, they passed down and the great mouth slowly closed. So Edward asks how long he wants to keep this creature alive. McLennigan says that he wants to keep it alive until he gets some of the scientist friends down here, and then after that, they'll kill it. Edward then says that you'll have a hard time killing this thing. Then he says, oh, if I only had the vitality of that animal, there is a monster whose vitality is so splendid that the removal of its brain does not disturb it. I should feel very happy if someone would remove my body. If I only had some of the beast's useless strength. Then McLennigan responds, in your case, the possession of a two-active brain has entered the body. Too much brain exercise and too little bodily exercise are the causes of your trouble. (laughs) What? (laughs) It would be a pleasant thing if you had the robust health of the Elasmosaurus, but what a wonderful thing it would be if that mighty engine had your intelligence. You see where this is going now. (laughs) And I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, no. Yeah, I really wish I hadn't read that synopsis because I knew we were coming around to this at some point. But it is really ridiculous. It's also where I began to suspect McGlennigan's whole narrative. There is no other person confirming that this stuff happened. Oh, yeah. Like, was Edward really that sick? No, he just killed Edward. Like, maybe McGlennigan had concocted this idea before in some way. And Edward happened to say you know i have a little tummy ache sure i'll hike up there with you but it was never as bad as this stuff just at the right moment edward's like i, I want to kill myself mclennigan has brought his surgical and medical equipment with him to dress the creature's wounds then edward comes up behind him grabs the scalpel and then he slits his own throat <laughs> that's his story that's the one that he's you know yeah he came up and just took my my scalpel Mm -hmm. and slit his own throat who does that it's like a really weak story from a guilty criminal it's like something i've seen on first 48 or one of these reality shows (laughs) now why do we find marks around the woman's neck in the shape of your hands i I don't know man i was just buying a magazine and she grabbed my hands was like making me strangle her i was like lady you made me drop my egg mcmuffin i didn't want to strangle anybody when i got up today Same thing. This guy definitely did not cut his own throat. No way. But so as Edward lies there dying, McLennigan looks at the Elasmosaurus. Then he looks at Edward. Then he thinks, (laughs) worth a shot. (laughs) Then this again, machetes Edward's head open. Right. No time for delicate surgical work here. To take his brains out and he puts them in the creature. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't count how many... Many, many, many ways this is ridiculous. I, well, okay, no, let me try. Give it a shot. Uh, one, 
The brain starts dying in minutes of oxygen deprivation. Well, that's why I had to use the machete. Two, machete is not a precision instrument. Like, no way would one be able to crack open a skull and not damage the brain with a machete. Unless you've attended that Brazilian community college course <laughs> where they had to practice this stuff. That's week six. Yeah, yeah, week six is cracking open a skull but not damaging the brain. Exactly. Yes, that's right, yeah. That's what they go for that course. They would go out to the malls and demonstrate that. Right. So that other people would get interested. That this environment is probably one of the most unsterile places <laughs> that you could ever perform brain surgery. <laughs> and the guy has no gloves. True. He's just scooping out the brain with his hands or he's maybe he's got a stick and he's kind of poking it out because he doesn't want to touch it. It's gross. <laughs> you know, get it in there. I think that the hot emanations from the lake are spontaneously sterilizing everybody and everything in the environment. Th they couldn't. The humans couldn't handle it if it was hot enough to kill all those bacteria. Well, OK. Or <laughs> there is no compatibility here mm -hmm. whatsoever. Right. The body would, would reject this brain. I mean, the creature is probably cold-blooded. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make any sense on so many levels, and yet it's happening. Yes. This is going to be the course of the story, and <laughs> it, it will work. It's going to happen. He puts the brains in, he dresses the wound, and he just lets the beast lie. I, I think the compatibility thing is like a reaction to the theory of evolution, which, of course, everybody was grappling with right. at this period in, in history. The idea that we are evolved from dinosaurs, that these beasts kind of exist deep down there within us, we have that lizard brain, I think is perhaps why he imagines that there would be some compatibility. <laughs> I, I also like this. For years, the medical fraternity has been predicting that brain grafting will sometime be successfully accomplished. Why has it never been successfully accomplished? Because it has not been tried. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only bar. <laughs> like most things, trying it makes it happen. Oh, golly. He says, until criminals under sentence of death are handed over to science for experimentation, we shall not know what can be done in the way of brain grafting. But public opinion would never allow it. These are the words of somebody who's been very frustrated by this, which drives <laughs> my theory that he killed this guy to do it. He's like, if only some criminals had been available, Edward would still be alive. And at the end of that entry, he says, it may be that a new era in the history of the world will begin here. You know how hard it is to transplant organs between people? Not just the same blood type. You've got to, there's all these other factors that are involved. Yeah. It's really difficult. But do you know how like they say that dogs react more to human expressions than they do to even the expressions of other dogs? I haven't heard that, but go on. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, between humans, brains don't flip over so well. But human to dinosaur, no problem. Interesting theory. I mean, I have evidence right here. <laughs> okay, yeah, I guess so. It was written down, so mm -hmm. therefore it's true. A day goes by, nothing. Another day goes by. He thinks he might see some response in the eyes, but he's not sure. Next entry, he's not there for a few days because McLennigan gets really sick. Yeah. So he can't go down and check on the dino Edward. But he finally does get down there after a few days of illness. It says, I'm more sure than yesterday that there's expression in the eyes. A look of troubled fear. Such a scene in the eyes of those who dream nightmares with unclosed lids. Or perhaps like suicides who've had their brains transferred to a dinosaur. <laughs> Might be a cause of the troubled fear. Next day, the flippers are moving slightly and the body stirs a bit, but he's not conscious. But it's confirmation that it's alive. The brain is somehow controlling these flippers. You know, it's this is a really bizarre version of Frankenstein. But in Frankenstein, she cleverly dodges all the science of it and just says that he figured out a way to do it in the end. That's true. Whereas he, this guy, he just <laughs> scoops out a brain and puts mm -hmm. it in, in a skull. Yes. That's it. Let me ask you this. Have you tried it? I have not tried it. All you have to do is try. But see, I've tried flying and that didn't work. It's only... Like <laughs> 
but I don't think you've tried hard enough. Oh boy, I have tried many, <laughs> many times to fly. I've even tried the greatest American hero way where you have to go one, two, three, jump. You have mm-hmm. to take three steps and jump on the third step. You've tried that? Doesn't work. What, recently? No. <laughs> No, as a kid. <laughs> oh, okay. As a kid, I would be in the backyard. I had a cape, and I'd yeah. just run around, just trying, trying, trying to fly. Your body hadn't grown enough. You should try it now. No, I'll try it right now. I'll no, no, right no, now. don't, don't. We gotta finish this episode. <gasps> <laughs> Crap. <gasps> <gasps> Nothing. He gets ill again. Stays in the house for three days. Goes back down to check on the beast. He thinks, boy, it's looking pretty dead. But then it mm-hmm. rears up its head on the neck. The whole thing moves. McLennigan is shocked, but he calls to Edward. And the creature stops and just kind of looks at him and looks as though he's trying to speak. Mm-hmm. McLennigan sa- <laughs> says to the creature, if you understand me, put your head on the rock. And the creature does this. Yes. The creature could move its neck and its flippers a bit, but not its body. And then he says, your mind has not yet learned to command your new body. I see you can move your head and neck, though, with difficulty. Move your body if you can. Ah, you cannot, as I thought. But it will all come in time. Whether you will ever be able to talk or not, I cannot say. But I think so, however. What? (laughs) Can talk? Yes. You gotta look at the pictures of the Elasmosaurus. There is no way that thing could talk. It doesn't have lips. It just has a bunch of sharp teeth coming out of its jaws. Mm -hmm. It's insane. It's a little insane. I mean, I thought it was insane before. Mm -hmm. So this is probably the most insane that the story is going to get, right? Of course. Then McLennigan hatches a plan with this new human-educated Elasmosaurus. Guess what? You can go into the lake where we can't go, and you could swim around and explore things. Yeah. You can find out what lies beneath the inner core of the Earth. It says, I waved my hands in my enthusiasm, and the great eyes of my friend glowed with a kindred fire. (laughs) Yes, we can do this. I didn't think it was going to go that way where they were going to team up. Yeah, there's a lot of things I didn't expect in this story, (laughs) especially this part right here. So next entry, a few weeks have gone by. Dino Edward is he's doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And guess what? He can talk. Yep. And not just talk. He can sing. (laughs) Come on. Why is he singing? Dinosaurs got talent. Here, This is what it says. I hear the mighty organ pipe tones of his tremendous, magnificent voice chanting the solemn notes of the Gregorian, the full-throated Latin words mingling with the roaring of the wind and the wild and the weird harmony. Yes. Why is he singing? Why is this in the story? It doesn't make any, it doesn't I, 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 add to anything. It's just freaking crazy. No, but crazy. I think it does. I think that this, the idea is, so he's put the human brain in there. At the beginning, it works. The dinosaur-human hybrid is at the top of the evolutionary chain. It's at the top of civilized humanity. So <sighs> the most civilized human thing you can do is sing. And not just sing, sing, sing in Latin. So these are very human, societally advanced things to be doing. So sure. I think it's a demonstration that that's, mentally where the elasmosaurus is right now <laughs> sure he's, sing, he's singing gregorian chants it's a total enigma scene out there you know? <laughs> uh, yes yes it is so dino edward goes down to the center of the lake to see if he can get into the hollow earth yeah but it's blocked by big stone so no dice mclennigan was going to leave but dino edward is afraid that if someone else finds him he's in a dino body that they'll kill him or capture him mm-hmm. so mclennigan sticks around it also says he is tormented by the fear that i will leave him and that he will perish of loneliness Aw, were you feeling empathy for him at all my suspension of disbelief <laughs> was shattered i mean i'm interested right. don't get me wrong because i don't know where the hell this is gonna go and i want to find out so i i feel more empathy for this creature than I have for any character in literature ever. <laughs> it, I mean, 
I don't know why. I don't know wow. why. I'm crying right now. But but proceed, proceed. So the singing Dino Edward is belting out. So beautiful. Uh, so beautiful. He's belting. <laughs> he's singing a Greek song of Anacreon to the tune of Where Did You Get That Hat? Mm-hmm. What? I don't know what that means. Yeah, he's singing a Greek song, but in a different tune yeah he's setting it to a, a modern you know pop tune yeah it's kind of a weird owl sort of thing he's yeah, doing there that's what he's doing well he's wearing those sunglasses too while he's doing it <laughs> remember while he's singing another scientist happens across the valley and it's that kind of scene where he's uh this in a, this the stereotypical scientist of course he's got a butterfly net yeah. he's carrying around <laughs> and he comes across the dinosaur singing and he's like whoa, 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 what and then the dinosaur laughs and the scientist goes yikes and he runs away <laughs> gotta have that little goofy scene then we skip ahead a year in the journal and then it, we find out that edward has become more bestial and less in control right and he doesn't participate in exploration anymore conversation becomes slangy and diffuse iterations concerning the trivial happenings of our uneventful life <laughs> So he just, like, talks about boring stuff. A lot of curse words. Why is freaking cable so expensive? That's the kind of stuff he'll talk about. No more. See, that's what I'm saying. He's devolving. So now he's sort of a Stanley Kowalski type of character. Sure. Who's just sweaty. Slangy. Says, when is this going to end in the absorption of the human mind by the brute body? The idea, it's it's a little like the fly, the Jeff Goldblum fly, where, you know, at first he's at the top of his intelligence, but the more the animal takes over, the less human he becomes. And that's what's happening here. And he says, once he's become full dinosaur, then I can finally put a gravestone over his human body. That's the last entry. And then we just get this last little bit, which is uh, from somebody else. April 15th. 1899. Professor William G. Brayfogle. Dear Sir, the enclosed intact manuscript and the fragments which accompany it came into my possession in the manner I am about to relate, and I enclose them to you, for whom they were intended by their late author. Two weeks ago, I was dispatched into the mountains after some Indians who had left their reservation, having under my command a company of infantry and two squads of cavalrymen with mountain howitzers. On the seventh day of our pursuit, which led us into a wild and unknown part of the mountains, we were startled at hearing from somewhere in front of us a succession of bellowings of a very unusual nature, mingled with the cries of a human being apparently in the last extremity. And rushing over a rise before us, we looked down upon a lake and saw a colossal, indescribable thing engaged in rending the body of a man. Observing us, it stretched its jaws and laughed, And in saying this, I wish to be taken literally. Part of my command cried out that it was the devil and turned and ran. But I rallied them and thoroughly enraged at what we had witnessed, we marched down to the shore and I ordered the howitzers to be trained upon the murderous creature. While we were doing this, the thing kept up a constant blabbing that bore a distinct resemblance to human speech, sounding very much like the jabbering of an imbecile or a drunk trying to talk gave the command to fire and fire again, and the beast tore out into the lake in its death agony and sank. With the remains of Dr. McLennigan, I found the foregoing manuscript intact and the torn fragments of the diary from which it was compiled, together with other papers on scientific subjects, all of which I forward. I think some attempt should be made to secure the body of the Elasmosaurus. It would be a priceless addition to any museum. Arthur W. Fairchild, Captain, USA. <laughs> That's the end. We should probably get somebody down there to pick up that uh, 
the dinosaur that talked like a drunk man. Might be of interest to a museum. <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> that is the end of the story. I'm really confused how this one has made it through time. Like, this story has stuck around. And that people reprinted it and were like, yeah, this is a good one. This is such a gift. I'm so glad that it's made it down through the last century. Yes. But I don't quite understand how. <laughs> I don't know. It's a fun, It's in a bunch of cryptozoology, anthology kind of things, you know. The anthologies of stories that are about strange creatures that might be discovered. So I think that community has kind of kept it alive. But it's about a dude who <laughs> gets his brain put in a dinosaur's body. Yeah. Like, that script wouldn't fly on an episode of Auto Man, you know? Like it's just, <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. There's it's been too some crazy, I don't know. Wouldn't even happen on Manimal. <laughs> it might happen on no, Manimal. No. If they had a this bigger thing- budget, I'm sure it would have happened on Manimal. <laughs> <laughs> I love dumb science. That's, like, one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah. Where you can just take a brain from one person, stick it in another guy, do the whole thing with a machete, and it works. That's, like, yeah, you- my favorite thing in the world. You loved Face Off. I love Face Off so much. It was the most ridiculous thing ever. Which makes it so good, too, because I'm enjoying it, and you being furious makes it a little better for some reason, too. (laughs) I think we saw that in the theater. Oh, we definitely saw that in the theater. The movie, and just to refresh those people who haven't seen it, the the whole plot is that the cop, John Travolta, they've captured the criminal, Nicolas Cage, Mm -hmm. and they take... Nicholas's cages just his face. Yeah. His like so it's literally his face mm-hmm. off of his body and they transplant it onto John Travolta. They do a switcheroo, yeah. They are different <laughs> body types. They are different heights. Uh-huh. They have different shapes of heads. Right. It's like they don't even take the bones off. They just take the skin. What's the problem? And they look just like one another. Like the guy's wife can't even tell. Nope. It's him. I was so (laughs) angered by that. But you saw that it worked, so why are you questioning? (laughs) (laughs) I want to thank our reader again, Alexander Hansen, delightful English teacher from Queens and delightful person. Thank you so much for reading for us, and hopefully we'll have her read again. Yeah, way to tackle an amazing story without (laughs) cracking up laughing. Uh, We appreciate it. Next week, I'm not sure what we're going to do. It'll either be something watery monstery. If we can't find that, it'll at least be monstery. Yes. Uh, We'll announce that on social media and on the site what we're doing next. And that's all we've got for this week. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lack, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!